When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. The Project Upland podcast is brought to you in part by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Adventure awaits. What's up, everybody? Nick Larson with the Project Upland Podcast. Welcome back to the show. As always, this episode is brought to you by our friends at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Coming off the big Pine Ridge Grouse Camp giveaway last week, if you missed the episode number 22 with Art Wheaton, check that out. We announced the winner of the Pine Ridge Grouse Camp giveaway. This week, we are transitioning back to our normal Project Upland giveaway. This week's winner is Wes Larrabee. Wes Larrabee shared one of our podcast posts on Facebook, and that is a good reminder to all of you as to how you get entered in the Project Upland giveaway. Weekly giveaway, we intend to send out some kind of Project Upland gear to one winner each week. To enter, all you need to do is one of these things. Leave us a review of the podcast. Leave us a rating of the podcast. Share the podcast, subscribe to it, any one of those things to help us publish and promote the Project Upland podcast. We will show our appreciation by sending out Project Upland gear to one lucky winner. So thank you to Wes, and I encourage all of you to do the same. You could be next week's winner. Two other reminders, I've I've been mentioning them on some previous episodes, and I will continue to do so. We've got our promo code with Gumleaf Boots, gumleafusa.com. The promo code is PU2017, PU2017. 
We get email updates usually about every week from Jack Butler, the CEO over at Gumleaf USA, and he lets us know when people enter the Project Upland podcast promo code and ordering Gumleaf boots. So people are, other listeners are taking advantage of that, and I encourage you to as well. I've got a pair of Gumleaf boots. I love them, and I think you will too. Check them out at gumleafusa.com. And one more time, that promo code is PU2017. The other promo code is for ShotCam. ShotCam is the world's most powerful shotgun camera. Check that out at shotcam.com, and that is shotcam. Cam is with a K, so it's S H O T K A M.com. Shotcam.com. Check out the videos. Very cool. I don't have a shot cam. I wish I did. The shot cam really is a phenomenal tool, especially with the spring, summer shooting season upon us. You can really get some detailed feedback on your shooting techniques, bad habits, good habits, and really work on improving shotgunning, which we hope to cover in a in a future episode of the Project Upland Podcast. So stay tuned for that. But in the meantime... Your promo code at shotcam.com is Project Upland. All one word, easy to remember, Project Upland. Promo code at shotcam.com. That will get you $75 off your order at shotcam.com. All right, let's get right to it. Today's episode, I am joined by Matthew Brewer, owner and operator of North Country Guide Service. They are located in Bemidji, Minnesota. I've known Matt for a few years, mainly via social media, and he's he's done quite he he he's out there quite a bit. He's he's on Facebook a lot. He's done some writing for ProjectDublin.com, been on some other radio shows, etc. He's he kind of does it all. He's he's twenty four seven, three sixty five, year round outdoors. He's got a guiding service. It's not not really an upland guiding service. He does a little bit of that, but it's mainly fishing, bear hunting, and a few other things that he talks about in our interview today. But Matt really grew up in northern Minnesota. He grew up an upland hunter, more specifically a rough grouse hunter and a sharptail grouse hunter because he grew up in a unique area of Minnesota where they were kind of right on the border of the forested landscape that you might think of when you think northern Minnesota. But then he's also on the edge of the prairie... Uh, shark tail grouse habitat area there's kind of a line through through northwest minnesota that that comes down to the southeast so i talked to matt a lot about his upland upbringing sort of where he developed his passion why he enjoys it so much and we focused on shark tail grouse for a good segment of it because matt is involved with the minnesota shark tail grouse society and we wanted to talk about that a little bit talk about rough grouse, dogs, guns, adventures, all that sort of stuff that we typically cover on the Project Upland podcast. So I think you're going to enjoy it. And without any further delay, let's jump right into today's interview with owner and operator of North Country Guide Service, Matt Brewer. All right, Matt Brewer, welcome to the Project Upland podcast. How are you, buddy? Good. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. We, uh, we appreciate you joining us on this Tuesday, March evening, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll chat about we'll chat about a bunch of stuff. And I, I, was, I was going to lead off with something that I've been leading off with, uh, what would be normal for me to lead off with other guests, and that would be 
what are you doing during the off season? But I, I know you well enough to know better than you don't really have an off season. Do you, Matt? <laughs> no, there's, there's a, a bird hunting off season, I guess, but, uh, but I don't really have an off season per se. I mean, between hunting and fishing and, and traveling and, and trying, trying out guns and trying out ammo and doing, doing everything else. It's, uh, it's kind of a never ending thing We're we're outdoors all the time and, and, uh, try to try to not have a leg in between everything we do outside. So. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, uh, I, uh, you know, you're pretty, you're pretty active on, on Facebook and social media, you know, for people that know you, they, they know that you're, you're doing some, you're always doing ice fishing guiding and, and you've got a, your, your guiding operation. What, what exactly do you guys do? It's, it's ice fishing. I know you do bear hunting. Uh, why don't you fill in the blanks? So it started out as open water fishing, uh, guiding for walleyes, um, I'm in Bemidji, Minnesota, so kind of uh, the epicenter of of Minnesota's uh, walleye world, I guess. Um, you know, sure. we're surrounded by surrounded by all the big big walleye waters. Um, and then my dad kind of did a little bit of bear guiding, and I took that over from him. Um, and you know, he taught me the ropes when I was a kid, and been been helping bear guide or bear hunting since I was very little. Um, so I took that portion and it started off that way as open water fishing and bear hunting. And then we branched out to fish house rentals and private guided trips for, for uh, trophy panfish on little backwater lakes with snowmobiles. And, uh, we do geese and cranes and ducks and, um, we do some upland guiding. Um, so a little bit of everything and, and we don't just do walleyes for fish anymore. It's, it's every, everything that swims, we chase it. So, um, so yeah, year round full service guiding, um, for pretty much anything you can, you can throw at us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and, uh, well, before we get too far off track here with that stuff, have you, uh, I'm just kind of curious, have you seen a, have you seen a pretty big uptick in, in people calling you up wanting to go musky fishing. I mean, it's, it's obviously the, the excitement around musky fishing. It seems obvious that it's, that it's just exploded, but I just wonder if that's, if you see that same thing through your guiding operation. Yeah, we do get a lot of calls. Um, there are some really, really good musky guides in this area. You know, we got, we have Leech Lake and, uh, and Lake of the Woods and Lake Bemidji, which, um, are probably three of the, of the better lakes in Minnesota aside from Mille Lacs. And so there, there's some really big name musky guides in our area. So, you know, people who are really into it, they, they, they'll call those guys, but people who've been with us a long time who are trying to get into musky fishing or people who are in the area and looking for a guide, they're typically going to find us first and, and they'll call us. And it definitely has gotten a lot more popular. Um, and even when I'm out fishing, just noticing the abundance of people who are out musky fishing in general is, is pretty crazy. So yeah, there's, there's definitely an uptick there. And, and obviously there's a little bit of debate with, uh, with muskies in lakes, but, uh, but we try to stay out of that, but, uh, but yeah, definitely a lot more popular. Yeah, that's cool. It's just, just kind of one of the, one of the interesting developments really. And, and again, I mean, this is this is the Project Upland podcast, but but I really I brought that up just to kind of paint the picture and set the stage a little bit. And that, you know, I think a lot of times people probably listen to the show and they think that, you know, of course we are uh, 
most of us and most of the people I interview are diehard upland hunters, but it's obviously it's not all we do. And you certainly, uh, you know, it's, it's part of your career and, and sort of what you do on a daily basis. And, and, uh, and it's, it's a, it's a labor of love for you, but you're a well-rounded outdoorsman and, and, you know, upland hunting fills, fills a piece of that puzzle. Um, so with that in mind, I guess, where, where did, you know, amongst all of this, this, the passion for all of the outdoors that you have, where, where did upland hunting begin for you and, and how did it sort of secure a place in, in your repertoire? Um, like, like most people who are diehards, I, I still remember shooting my very first rough grouse. Like, um, you know, that's, uh, <laughs> that's the king, right? Uh, yep. Rough, rough grouse are the king. So, um, I grew up, I, I was actually born four miles from the Canadian border in Roseau, Minnesota. Um, and you just grouse hunted, but you grouse hunted and you played hockey. That's what you did. And, uh. I remember my dad taking me out and we'd walk trails and he had a Springer Spaniel and I'll never forget. It was like just after sunrise and ginger, the Springer, uh, popped a grouse up into a tree and my dad, my dad was like, all right, now's your chance. And I had like an old new England arms over and under four ten twenty two, And, uh, and, uh, I swung that up and, and it was pretty heavy. Um, and I shot it out of the tree, which, um, when it's your first grouse, it really doesn't matter. And, uh, and she brought it back and I remember the look on my dad's face when she brought it to me instead of him. It was, uh, it was kind of one of those things like that instilled, um, good dog work and, uh, and, you know, seeing my dad like, Hey, that isn't what was supposed to happen with, with that bird. Um with that retrieve and then him realizing, Oh, I'm glad it did happen that way. Um, that was, that was my first experience with it. And then it was, you know, and then I was in the club, I was in the family club. I could shoot a grouse. So then I'd go with my dad and my brother and my uncle and, um, my brother's 10 years, my elder. So, um, you know, he was already well into, uh, deep into, into grouse and hunting in general before I was of age. So I joined them and, you know, I was the young buck and a lot of times I'd get the most opportunities because they felt bad for the young guy. But, um, but grouse hunting back then in the eighties, I mean, I don't, I I don't know, obviously I don't have any, any data from the eighties, but I remember grouse hunting being so much easier. (laughs) Um, and, and maybe it's because, you know, my dad and brother were doing the leg work for me and they were finding the birds and I was just along for the ride and, and able to, uh, to pull the trigger and, and walking was a heck of a lot easier when I was a kid than it is now. But, um, but that's kind of how it started for me. And, uh, we spent many, many weekends, uh, grouse hunting in the Beltrami Island state forest, which is one of the larger forests in Minnesota and, and, uh, you know, rough grouse and spruce grouse and, and then we lived, um, outside of town and there were a lot of sharp tail and Hungarian partridge, um, a lot of Hungarian partridge back in the eighties and early nineties in Northern Minnesota. And, um, as soon as I was able to go off on my own, I'd go walk the CRP behind our field, which was adjacent to, uh, our neighbor's bean field. And, and we were able to, to harvest a, a lot of grouse and rabbits and, 
and Hungarian partridge. And every once in a while, we'd get rough grouse that would wander from the riverbank edge up to our crab apple trees. And, you know, I'd always beg my dad to go out and shoot the birds out of the crab apples. And <laughs> uh, there's a lesson to be taught there. You know, he, no, the, you leave, you leave the crab apple birds alone. But, um, so that's kind of how things started for me and just evolved from there, I guess. Yeah, that's, you know, that certainly, uh, uh, a wide, wide variety of, of experiences and, and really the, you know, you're, you grew up in Northern Minnesota and I think a lot of, a lot of people think, you know, North woods, obviously rough grouse, but, but you're sort of on, you're sort of on the, on that edge there where, where the, the forest habitat gives way to, to more prairie. So you, you had some of those sharp tail and very curious to hear the, the Hungarian partridge. That's, uh, I didn't even, I wasn't even aware that that, that was a, a huntable bird up, up in the Northwest. So that, is that pretty much disappeared now? It's definitely faded. Um, we still shoot a couple a year. Um, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll bump into a covey when you're sharp tail hunting here and there, or, um, every once in a while, it's pretty cool. We'll be driving and we'll see a group of huns out, um, pecking gravel and, you know, you obviously, obviously let those birds go or you bump them off and then go chase them later. But, um, but every once in a while we'll run into bigger pockets and, um, it's, it's definitely faded. I mean, I remember them, they were thick when I was a kid, but I think, um, CRP loss, monoculture, uh, different, uh, different things like a lot more corn and, and things like that have taken over. Um, when I was a kid, I remember, uh, it used to be a saying in Northern Minnesota that you can't grow corn. So it was all small grain and, and beans. And obviously, uh, the Hungarian partridge enjoyed that. <laughs> and, uh, and, and now, uh, you know, you can pretty much grow today's corn anywhere. So there's a lot more cornfields up North, um, uh, corn and beans pretty much dominate. Um, so you don't have as much small grain. And like I said, monoculture is I think tough on the Hungarians. So, it, it's declined, but we still, we still see some birds every year and uh, able to harvest a few. And, um, but every year it seems to be less and less. I mean, uh, I definitely don't see the numbers like I did when I was younger. So. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I mean, it's, it's definitely, it's, it's not breaking news or anything, but certainly the birds go that the way that the habitat goes, whether that's, that's up or down, um, very subject, very subject to their environment. That's a common thread with, with just about every upland species. Okay, another uh, another side note here. Do you guys have turkeys up that way yet? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah, that's another funny thing. Like uh, it, last year was my first real experience with. Um, we have a farm in Bemidji or outside of Bemidji, and last year was the first year that I actually had turkeys here on my farm. Um, we had them in the pasture, and actually, my son and I tried to tried to reap uh, two toms that were hanging out in my pasture. Um, <laughs> and you know, I, I had seen turkeys around the Bemidji area. Um, in, in years past, you know, you'd run into, uh, to some here and there, but now it's pretty regular. And, uh, the people who purchase tags for this area, uh, a lot of them are successful. I mean, there's, there's getting to be a lot of turkeys, but, um, when I was a kid, I, I, I keep reflecting and, when I was a kid, we used to go down to Harmony, Minnesota, down by Rochester, um, and we'd hunt around Harmony, the Amish community there. 
And that was, that was basically the only place in Minnesota where you could, you could buy a turkey license and it was rather tough to acquire one. Um, and I don't remember when we actually opened the turkey season in Minnesota. I think it was, I think it was, wasn't it early nineties or late eighties, but, but anyway, that was about the only place you could go. And now there, there's turkeys. Um, I see them all the way up to back near my hometown. I mean, uh, Thief River Falls, Roseau, uh, Strathcona, Middle River, that whole Northwest area, uh, that is predominantly known for, for sharp tail and rough grouse. Uh, now there's, there's really, really big populations of turkeys and, here in the Bemidji area, we are in the big forest, so uh, so we don't see nearly as many, but you branch off even 30 miles and you get into some of the farm country and you start to see a lot of birds. So, Sure. Yeah, well, Matt, uh, AJ has not asked me to do the uh, Start a Morning Thunder podcast yet, but if he does, maybe he'll be my first guest. <laughs> yeah, this uh, this spring, typically in the spring, I'm uh, I'm doing as much as I can for prairie grouse species and and i do a lot of trail cameras for uh for rough grouse and um you know i've tried to get into a little bit of the woodcock stuff um and this year i'm kind of gonna ignore upland birds um which is terrible especially since that's what we're talking about but i'm gonna i'm i i'm gonna go watch prairie chickens boom one day and uh and i'll probably set a couple trail cams out for for some big drummers. Um, but other than that, my spring is going to completely re- revolve around turkeys. I'm starting my season off next week in Florida and then, uh, and then off to South Dakota and then Minnesota and then possibly Kansas and Nebraska. So my spring is very full of, of turkeys. Oh, that's, that's interesting. As if, as if you didn't have enough going on, that's, uh, that's a, a whole new slate of slate of things for you to do. That's cool. Uh, hey, let's dive into the. I want to jump into the the setting up trail cameras for grouse real quick. How do you? I've done that before. I've I've uh, I've sort of cherry picked a few drumming logs behind one of my buddies' um, hunting cabins, and then another friend of mine and I actually went out in the woods uh, one year and just basically just kind of found a few and set up trail cameras and got some cool pictures. How do you? How do you go about that? Yeah, I mean, um, something else we do is we do a lot of mushroom picking. So obviously spring morel, spring morel hunting, um, you're out picking spring morels. It's, it's very, very common to come across drumming logs. So I always just keep uh, trail cameras in my tote. And, um, if I find a good drumming log, I'll set up a trail camera and it, it's really easy when we're already in the woods. Um, but if I want to go, if I want to go out, um, and do it on days when I, I, I'm not out mushroom picking, which is rare, but, uh, if I just want to go out and find a log and set up, um, I, a lot of times will find them, um, just from areas that I've hunted in the past and, and a drumming log. Once you, once you know what they look like is pretty easy to find and pretty easy to tell whether it's fresh or not. And, uh, and then I'll just set my trail cams up and it doesn't seem to affect the birds at all. They don't care one bit. And, uh, once I start getting some photos, I'll switch it over to, to video mode and try to get some, uh, some videos with audio. And I, I love the challenge of doing that. Um, I wish I had more time to set up blinds and I'd, I'd love to take my DSLR and sit in a blind and actually get some photos while they're drumming. But, uh, this is as close as I can get with the limited time I have. So, 
Yeah, that's that's really kind of the next step. I know Matt Soberg has has done that quite a bit, and he he was posting about it recently. And I haven't done that yet myself, but I I'd like to. I'd like to find a drumming log sort of near my cabin somewhere and, and try to get out there early one morning and get some get some really good pictures because obviously it is such a cool thing to to see to witness. So are are you doing that? I mean, are you doing that for fun? Are you doing that just because you enjoy kind of kind of capturing the pictures and the videos or are you also paying attention to where you're finding those drumming logs and, and getting those pictures and maybe, uh, may, maybe paying that a visit in the fall? Well, I, most of the areas I already hunted them anyway. Um, okay. uh, so, so it was more finding these areas as a product of hunting than, uh, than finding these hunting areas as a product of using trail cams and, and yeah, I'm just doing it for fun. I'm kind of a trail cam nut. Um, I, I would say it's a small addiction. Like I, I have trail cams out right now, um, <laughs> looking for, for anything from predators to, uh, hoping for turkeys to, to start strolling out of their winter grounds. Um, I'll get grouse on trail cam every once in a while. Um, but I, I just really enjoy doing it and it's, it's, it's kind of a pursuit. I mean, it's like hunting. You're, you're just doing it over a longer period of time with, uh, with less work, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I think there's, I think there's something really interesting about, you know, when, when we walk in the woods, it's a cool feeling to know that you're in the wild, you know, surrounded by animals, trees, the environment, but then it's, it's just to, to solidify with a picture that that wild you know that wilderness and the animals to to see them out there in the places that you know you set foot on i think that's that's kind of cool so i i i know where you're coming from with that for sure yeah and it's kind of it kind of started for me like hearing them drum and then i remember my brother and i sneaking up on one um that was drumming behind his house and being able to watch that bird drum was really cool and then um and then I realized, okay, trail cameras have evolved so much and you can get HD video and being able to watch how they react and what they're doing when they come up on that log and, and, you know, you can relate it to obviously temperature and time of day and, uh, cloud cover and all of that stuff. It, it's really cool to pick all of that apart and actually be able to, to put, uh, a visual with, uh, with that sound you hear, uh, all spring and often, oftentimes in the, in the fall on sunny days too. So. Yeah, definitely. And what, yeah, one of the, one of the most interesting things that I realized, which it's, it's common knowledge amongst biologists and, and those that, that study the rough grouse, it's mentioned in Gordon Gullion's book, Grouse of the North Shore, but I had no idea that during the peak of the drumming that the, the drummer will, he'll get up there and they will drum basically 24 seven year all all day long all night long uh, it would you know every couple of minutes or so just crazy i had no idea that they would be out there pounding away well it's pitch black out yeah yeah we've heard it at night here um on our farm we we have pretty good grouse habitat surrounding us and and uh we get we get birds in our crab apple trees and uh so we we've got plenty of birds around and it's uh it's pretty common in the spring to to hear drummers around here and and on a nice calm evening, you can, you can hear them during the peak. And, and I definitely see that with the trail cams. I mean, when I, yeah, yeah. when I go to, 
when I go to check the camera and the bird hops off the log and runs 50 yards away and just stands there and then you leave and within four to five minutes, he's already back on the log drumming and, and I've got, you know, 220 videos. I know that he spent some time there. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, since we're, since we're talking a little bit about rough grouse, I will ask you, uh, you will know, I will know this was, it was an interesting season for the rough grouse. I think in the upper great Lakes, certainly in Minnesota and Wisconsin, I didn't make it out your way towards the Bemidji area, but what was your take from somebody that spends a fair amount of time in the grouse woods? I, I, I guess, how much did you hunt this fall and, and sort of what was your take on the, on the grouse season with the, with keeping in mind that, that our drumming surveys were, were very high. So that set an expectation for a lot of people, not saying that it set an expectation for you, but, but what was your experience this fall? I, well, I, like any hardcore grouse hunter, I keep logs and my logs, uh, showed that this was the worst season I've had since I started keeping logs. Um, and when, when was it that you started keeping the logs in the late nineties? I think 99 was the first year my logs. I am almost positive that the first year of my logs is 99. Yep. And, um, some of that is a product of, you know, as I get older, I get busier and, um, you know, I, I've got a lot on my plate. I'm doing a lot of different things. Work is more demanding. I've got kids, the farm, yada, yada. But I still, I still, you know, I log the amount of hunting days and encounters and, um, I'm not as thorough with encounters as a lot of people, but, uh, but I still, you know, I try to log how many birds I, I put up and how many were pointed or, or what have you. But, um, but I think I hunted pretty close to the same amount of days that I hunted last year. And my bird numbers were, were down by about 10 on harvest and down about 30 on encounters. So, um, so last season was much better for me on a season where, you know, where, uh, people thought the numbers were going to be semi-poor, uh, last year. And, the, and then this past fall, you know, we had the high expectations and it, uh, my numbers did not reflect that they were, they were pretty tough, but it could be, um, you know, there's a lot of excuses that I've tried to make up for myself. It could be that I, I'm not branch, I'm not branching out and, and hunting a lot of new areas. I'm hunting a lot of old stomping grounds, even though I've written about it and I've told people like, don't hunt memories. Um, but I'm not hunting memories. I'm hunting out of convenience. Like it's close to my house. I, I can get there after work and, and go for, go for a jog with a dog type of thing. Um, so I, you know, it's more convenience for me, but on the days that I did branch out, um, and, you know, travel an hour or two and then spend the day in the woods, I actually had my highest harvest numbers were from days like that. And part of that could be, you know, you, you travel and you decide, okay, today I'm hitting the grouse woods and that's all I'm doing today. And you pack a lunch and, you know, there's no getting a call from home from one of the kids like, Hey dad, when are you coming home? It's I'm gone today and I'm grouse hunting and the dog is going to sleep for three days. Um, you know, it's a little easier for your, your numbers to be higher. Um, cause I think you're working a little harder. So there's always so many variables with everything you do. And, uh, and I, I don't know if the bird numbers were better as I traveled, um, or if it was just that I was working harder, but, uh, but I definitely, definitely did see an uptick when I would travel to, to different areas. So, so next year, uh, I think that I'm going to do a lot more of that. So, 
Yeah, that's interesting. And that's, 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 uh, that's cool. I, I didn't know that you were, you were a, a logger kind of like that, but, but I do think that's, you know, in years like these, it's, it, it makes the numbers a lot more interesting because again, like you said, last year we were predicted to not have such a great season. And I've, I've, I, my, my, now granted, this is just you and I talking, but my experience very much mirrored yours in that last year, it wasn't supposed to be very good, you know, kind of we're near the bottom of the cycle, et cetera. And I felt like I had an okay season this year, you know, with drumming counts up 60, near 60%, you're obviously, you're expecting an increase. Now how high your expectations are is up to the individual, but my numbers were down. My numbers were down at like yours were. So it just, it's really interesting in that there are variables with the survey. Like you said, there are variables with, with the survey itself. There are variables with the spring and summer weather. There are variables in the areas that you hunt and the way that you hunt that are just never going to be consistent from year to year. So it's it's a it's an interesting thing to look at. But again, if you keep numbers over a period of time, you know you kind of get a sense of the average. And and we could speculate all day about about what exactly happened, or you know, and we we would never we would never know exactly what happened. But it's I do find it makes for interesting conversation and I wanted to wanted to get your take on on the fall of 2017 in the Bemidji area. Yeah, it uh like I said it it just didn't seem as as good um and my you know I have my own theories and I I've expressed them publicly and <laughs> and been beat up a little bit but um <laughs> but the the factors the main factors I thought played a role and, and some of the data doesn't really reflect, um, my memories, but like, uh, after drumming, um, you know, the counts were good. Um, and then we had what in the Bemidji area, um, obviously I wasn't like checking my rain gauge daily, but I was guiding every day on the water. And, uh, and I, I wore rain gear more in the spring than I ever remember wearing rain gear while guiding. So it was super wet in the Bemidji area. And I think, I think that that played a gigantic role. I think, um, you know, a lot of the grouse around here, they, they seem to nest kind of right, right at the, right at the edge of that water table. And you get, you get, you know, a 24 hour dousing and, uh, and those birds are going to abandon that nest or, um, or after hatch, um, a lot of those birds are the, the broods are going to get hypothermia or, yeah. uh, w- what have you. But I, I thought it was a really wet spring and that was, that was my main theory on, on why the, the numbers were low. Um, you know, I, I have other theories that, that play into it. And obviously, you know, the new developments with, uh, with them finding West Nile affecting things, um, we're, we're not short of mosquitoes or ticks or anything in this area. So, um, all of, all of those things factor in as well. Um, but, but what it comes down to is you can speculate and speculate and you can try to figure it out all you want, but it, it, in the end, it doesn't really matter. I mean, (laughs) the only reason I'm going out is because I want to eat a few grouse and I want to watch my dog work and we want to spend time together. So, um, so we achieved that and, and that's all I can ask for. I'm definitely not complaining like, oh man, I, I never want to grouse on again because the season was so bad. It just gives you more drive to have a better season uh, next year. But, um, 
but yeah, those are, those are kind of the things I think happen, but, but it's, it's tough to say because I did hear of other hunters who, uh, hunted in this area and did better than I do and probably don't hunt nearly as much as I do. Or, uh, I talk, I recall talking to one hunter and he doesn't even have a dog and, uh, you know, he mostly does road hunting or, uh, or walking around and he shot, he shot almost twice as many birds as I did this past year. So, um, kind of makes you feel like you need to re- rethink what you're doing at times, but, uh, <laughs> but you, you and I know, um, there, I, I've got this, the seven, seven days theory. There's seven magical days in the fall. Um, and I don't know if you and I have ever talked about this, but there, but I'm, you got my interest. <laughs> so uh, there's seven magical days in the fall where, um, according to my logs, um, sometime around a certain date, um, that you, you have to be in the woods as many times as possible, covering as much ground as possible because the birds just seem to come out of the woodwork. Like you haven't, you may have been having the worst season of your life. And if you're out on any of those seven days, you know, you can, you can shoot limits and your encounters might be in the thirties. Um, and I don't know if you've noticed that or not, but there's definitely, you know, like that first week of October, um, when, when it seems like the, the clover on all the trail edges is really, really peaking and it gets that perfect amount of dew on it. And, um, it just seems like the birds are out and they're all over the place and, and they're closer to trail edges and easier to access and, and they're holding well because of the wet ground and the dogs can scent them better. And it just, I, I've, I've, I've got on my logs these, and it's not always like a, an exact certain date, but, but around a certain date every year, it seems like you'll get, you'll get those days that are magical where it seems like every, every piece of land you walk has birds and, and they're all doing what they're supposed to be doing. And, um, I, am sure every hunter is nodding their head right now and going, Oh yeah, I've had, I, I, I've had days like that. So yeah. Those, those are the days you got to take advantage of. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I I don't know that I've ever put a, you know, put a put a blanket over it and said, you know, it's it's the seven day theory, but it's interesting because you know, there absolutely are. I think it's I guess it's kind of whatever whatever it is you're doing, whether you're fishing, deer hunting, grouse hunting, but but I can I can certainly recall days in the grouse woods where yeah, it just seems like they're everywhere and and, you know, I mean, some of that's probably very logical. It's, you know, maybe it's a, it's a nice calm day. The grouse are confident. They can hear everything. Maybe there's a nice, you know, rays of sun coming down and, and the food is, the food is plentiful and the grouse are on the trails, kind of like you said, but, but it is interesting in that, you know, you could come back the next day and, and not see anything. And you can sometimes, you know, any grouse hunter knows you can, you can work the same cover, back to back days. I try not to do that much anymore, but you could do that and you can have two completely different days in in the same cover and it's like, you know, where do they all go? But but, you know, that is that is hunting and I think that's part of the allure and I think that's that's sort of what makes it so much fun. So next fall when when the Matt Brewer log says one of those magical days is coming up, I'm gonna expect some kind of a some kind of a text message from you. I gotta get in the woods. <laughs> well, I like and and it's not like a specific seven days where I'm okay. My seven days starts now and it's seven days in a row. I just noticed that. And when I look back at my logs, I, I have seven days 
every season where it's perfect and it all it all falls right around the same times but sure. but like the this last year for example um i think it was october 11th and it, it typically is sometime around that sometime around that beginning of october middle october um and who what bird hunter doesn't want to be in the woods in october period but yeah. um but i i remember i was sitting on like i had i had shot like 13 birds or something like that. And I, I remember sending AJ the picture because it was one of those days where I, I couldn't do anything wrong. I could miss, but, but it didn't matter because <laughs> there, there was more around the next corner. And, uh, and I just happened to, when I, when I left the house that morning, I had the day off and the kids were in school and I, I, I had a rare day just completely free. And when I left the house that morning, I remember thinking, wow, it's really like pretty outside it's it's beautiful there's dew and i grabbed the dslr and it just happened to be one of those magical days and i remember you know i'd shoot birds and and uh and then on the next track i'd walk i wouldn't even i wouldn't even bring the gun i it got to the point where i had like two or three birds in the bag and i'm like okay this next walk i'm just gonna try to get pictures of nasa my dog and i i got some great photos of him on point and at the end of the day, I, you know, I had pictures of him with a limit. Um, and it, it was just one of those days that where everything worked out. And in that day I shot more than half of what I had the, re- <laughs> the rest of the season. And it was just in one day. <laughs> so, you know, a, a day like that can make or break your season. I mean, and you, you tag, tag six, seven of those together and you've got, you've got an epic year. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's, uh, that's very true. And, and, you know, I mean, again, it goes back to the, that's why we do it. Right. I mean, not all, not every day is not every day is like that, certainly. And, and it wouldn't be the same if they were, but those are the days that you live for every fall and they keep you coming back, which is cool. Now, how old is your boy now? Does he, does he have his first grouse in the bag already? He does not. He is 10. Um, he'll be, he'll be 11 this coming grouse season. Um, he, he has a September birthday like me. Um, but he grouse hunted a couple times last year. Um, we actually spent more time trying to get him his first woodcock just because we thought it would be a little easier. Um, sure. Yeah. Just because of, you know, more opportunities, but, uh, he didn't get, he didn't get his woodcock and he hasn't got his grouse yet, but, uh, but he's, I mean, he's already proving to be a well-rounded hunter. He's, he's shot. I think three turkeys and he's got a deer already. Um, and he shot banded, a banded pigeon. He's been out duck hunting. He shot ducks. So, um, it's, it's kind of weird for me. Like, you know, my first, my first harvest of something special to me, um, you know, I'd shot squirrels and rabbits and a few pigeons or, you know, whatever random birds with a BB gun. But my first real thing was, a was a rough grouse and, and, uh, for, for him, you know, his first thing was a turkey. So it's, uh, yeah. it's a lot, it's a lot different, but it's, but it's really cool. And now he's, you know, he, he's kind of like me. He's got like this bucket list thing going on where like he wanted a black squirrel for the longest time. Like we, we've got quite a few melanistic squirrels up here and he, he wanted a black squirrel and he wanted to get it mounted. And, and that was like his bucket list item. And finally he got his black squirrel in it. And then it was like, okay, now I want to shoot a mature greenhead mallard. And it's really fun to watch. Cause I remember doing that as a kid, like, 
you know, I'd draw a picture of a, of a mallard or something. And I'm like, Oh, this is the next thing I'm going to harvest. And, um, <laughs> it's kind of cool watching him. And, and I think this fall that'll be, you know, aside from, uh, getting the dog a sufficient amount of work, the, the main goal is, is trying to get him, uh, some birds this fall. So, yeah, that's very cool. It's, it's, uh, it's definitely a family affair with the brewers, um, your son and you, you have a daughter and your wife were, was your wife, uh, was she into hunting? Cause I know that, I know that she is now, well, or was that something that you sort of led her into? Uh, it's, it's kind of interesting. Someone posed a question on Facebook the other day. Um, and they said, would you ever date an anti hunter or someone who is anti gun or vice versa? If you were an anti hunter or anti gun, would you ever date a hunter or and, uh, and I read through a lot of the comments and, and I found it really interesting, you know, a lot of, you know, most people were like, never, never. <laughs> but yeah. when I met my wife, um, she, she didn't grow up in a hunting family. Um, her parents didn't own a gun. Um, she had never been around guns. And when we started dating, she would come grouse hunting with me a lot because, well, I mean, let's just be honest. If she wanted to spend time with me, she, she, she was going to be grouse hunting in the fall. So, <laughs> um, and I remember some of our best conversations and probably a large reason why we, um, we connected so well is because of all those conversations on long grouse trips and, um, you know, driving trails and walking trails and driving old backwoods to get to a certain tract of land I'd like to get to or getting stuck and, uh, making fun of each other or yelling at each other yeah. or whatever. Um, but she never yielded a gun. And, and finally, um, I, I don't remember what year it was. It was maybe six or seven years ago. Um, she decided to come with me up to my brother's hunting cabin and she was going to sit one night with me for deer in one of the enclosed box stands, you know, spoiler for the night. And, and, uh, try to ease her into it. So she sat with me and I harvested a buck that night and, and she looked at me and she's like, I'm, I'm doing that next year. Like wow. she, she felt, you know, what we all, what we all know, that familiar feeling of adrenaline and, and, uh, it, it, it all of a sudden just clicked for her. Like, okay, I'm going to do this now. And she didn't want my help. She wanted to do it all on her own. So, she went through hunter safety, um, and, and, uh, started shooting some guns with me, which I was not complaining about my wife hanging out with me <laughs> shooting guns. So, <laughs> yep, um, yep. and then, and then she harvested, uh, a buck her fir- very first year and she did it pretty much all by herself. I guess the only thing I did is, you know, I scouted obviously and, and set up the blind for her and, and everything else was on her. And, uh, and now she loves turkey hunting. Uh, we went out to the Black Hills turkey hunting together last year, and we're going to Wyoming antelope hunting together this year. And um, now she's the bucket lister. Now she's shot bear, and she's she's got the only deer on the wall in our in our house um, because because <laughs> that's just how it goes. I hunt my entire life, and on her third season, she shoots a monster. So, um, but yeah, she's. She's highly addicted to, uh, to grouse and woodcock hunting and deer. Um, deer is probably her favorite thing, but, but it's really cool because, uh, you know, when I answered that question on Facebook, I said, you know, absolutely. If I could do it all over again, I would choose her. And, uh, 
and she knew nothing about guns, didn't really like hunting per se, and was kind of an animal lover and, and would get kind of bummed out when I would bring home deer and be cutting them up in the garage. Um, but she understood my passion for it and she wasn't going to criticize me for it. And finally, uh, it took with her and, and I'm happy it did. So I would absolutely do it all over again the same way. So. Yeah, that's really cool. You know, I, I, w- I wouldn't, uh, obviously wouldn't have known that, that entire backstory, but I think it's, I think it's a good example and it's a great story. And it reminded me of, uh, when I did the interview with Bob McMichael of chuckerculture.com, I think it was episode nine, maybe same, similar story. His wife was, I think she, I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, she was, she was pretty much anti-hunter when, when she met him, but she followed him along for a long time with, uh, with, uh, camera and eventually you know i think his passion and 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 it was really the dogs for her it was the love of the dogs and seeing the dogs do what they want to do it led her down that path so again you know important reminder like we don't all have it as easy uh, of an entry i talked about this a little bit last week with we you know you guys like you and me we had a pretty easy open door into hunting and not everybody has that so it's it's a, it's a patience thing and it's exposing people in the right way. Not, you know, not pressuring, like, like you mentioned and just kind of easing people into it. And man, you never know, you never know who's, who's the next best or, or most passionate hunter is going to be one of my old coworkers, Trip Way for the Rough Grouse Society. He used to always say, you know, he would tell people that you might be the best grouse hunter in the world, but you just don't know it yet. And, and it's just, it's that opportunity thing that a lot of people unfortunately don't have, but we're certainly trying to change that. I think in a little bit, a little bit every day as we can. Yeah, definitely. So you mentioned your dog a couple of times. What, what kind of dog do you run? Uh, an ugly one. Uh, oh. <laughs> wire <laughs> pointing Griffon. A wire haired pointing Griffon. Now, is that your first, is that your first of that breed? Yeah, he's my first Griff. Um, I ran, I, I grew up with Springers. Um, that's pretty much all we had. My dad loved Springers and that's pretty much all we had. Um, and when I moved out, I, I wanted a pointer. Um, my uncle had pointers that I had hunted pheasants behind and I had decided that I wanted a pointer. So I, I got a German short hair, my wife and I, and and that again that's when she really started liking coming along to watch him um and then we actually studded him out a few times and uh we were offered pick of the litter so we got a second short hair which uh which i i don't recommend (laughs) (laughs) um like bob st pierre uh from peasants forever he he would tell you that he that he wouldn't change a thing but but I'd love to lock him in a room and have a serious conversation about life with two short hairs. <laughs> um, I, I loved both of them and they're, they were great when you got in the field, but, uh, but it sure is, um, it sure is a challenge at home. I mean, they're, they're very high strung and, uh, it, it was like having kids and we didn't, you know, we didn't have kids when we, when we first had the short hairs. So, um, when we lost them, uh, we lost one to, uh, to thyroid disease and old age. And then the other one, um, she had cardio, cardio myopathy. And, and, uh, every time we'd get done hunting, she, 
she was hacking uh, like crazy. Um, that enlarged heart just overcame her. And when we started looking, we wanted a new breed and uh, something a little more cold tolerant because I hunt diver ducks a lot in November. Um, and the short hairs would just look at me like, have fun. Uh, we'll see you when you get home. And, uh, and we, we wanted something a little more versatile and, uh, and through a ton of research, um, you know, came across the Griffon and, and fell in love with it. Um, I, actually one of my clients who has become a friend over the years, and he's also a, a very diehard upland hunter. Um, he pointed him out to me. He's like, uh, because at that time I was looking at German wire hairs and he's, you know, he gave me his experiences with them and through research, I, I found that that wasn't maybe going to be the fit for me and my family. Um, and he suggested the Gravon and I'm like, oh yeah, that, that look is awesome. And, you know, he, he said they're supposedly a lot calmer than a, than a wire hair and, and, uh, and we went with it and. I, I don't want to give any dog I've ever had in my past, uh, a bad rap because they've all been fantastic. But, uh, but this one is, is kind of taking the cake. He's, he's so well-rounded and at home, he's just a lazy bum that the kids can, can pick on and, and play with. And he's absolutely wonderful. Um, like any, do- any dog, you know, he'll wreck a pair of gloves that may have fish slime on him or something, but, uh, yep. but, but that's just part of dog life. So, yeah. How old is he now? He is three okay. uh, or three and a half if you're a kid. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so same same age as same age as my dog. So you're really you're right in that, you know, those first three years, a, a lot changes from from year to year, and and is is he's still in the development curve. So what's that what's what's that been like? Kind of seeing him come up, you know, your first Griffon, and what are you seeing from him now that you didn't two years ago? I actually, um, you know, I was expecting this like long puppy stage and, um, by last season he had, he had kind of found his stride and, and I feel like he's, he's kind of in that, in that primer stage where he's, you know, he's right on the, right on the edge of the best years of his life already. Um, which I love. And if he keeps excelling from where he's at now, I'm, I'm going to be one very happy camper. Um, but, but if he stays the way he is right now, I, I'm more than happy. I mean, he, he's steady. Um, his retrieves are solid. There's nothing he won't retrieve. Um, and everyone has a different expectation of their dog, you know? Um, and everyone is so, so different. Um, you can talk to 50, 50 bird hunters and everyone's going to tell you they, they want something that that uh, another person may not care about um like for the longest time with woodcock with my short hairs um you know i i'd drop a woodcock and my male would go over and stand over it but he absolutely refused to retrieve them and i always used to i always used to give the excuse like at least he finds them for me and (laughs) and i'm getting older now so it definitely doesn't hurt me to bend over and pick up a bird i could use a lot more (laughs) a lot more exercise in my life anyway. But, but now that I have a a dog that, you know, he, he doesn't mind the scent of them at all. Actually, he loves them and, uh, and he'll retrieve them. You know, it makes, it makes life a lot easier. And my, my opinion on that whole thing has changed. And I think that's what happens. You're, you know, especially if you switch to a different breed, you're, 
your expectations and, and thoughts kind of change on everything. But, uh, but he does everything that I want him to do. Um, and I, I was lucky in that I didn't have to force fetch him. Um, he just has that natural in him, like, Oh, Tate, my son, like, Oh, he shot a coot. I'll, I'll retrieve a coot. Like <laughs> he, he just does not, does not care one bit. So, um, so I was lucky, lucky there. And, and, uh, you know, holding steady, um, is not a problem for him. Um, I always, I always use the, the hashtag, my Griff went stiff <laughs> because, uh, <laughs> when, when he locks up, it's just wherever he's standing and whatever position he's in, that's it. He's, he's locked up. Um, nobody, I don't think nobody, anybody's ever going to accuse them of being pretty in the way they point. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if, the back, if the back leg happens to be up and the tail happens to be sideways, that's where they stay. So Interesting. Oh, that's, that's, that's very cool. I've, I actually spent a little bit of time hunting over AJ's Griff this fall and he, this was his kind of first, second season. He's, he's still in that, uh, the early stages. So it was cool to see. I hadn't hunted with one before, but yeah, they're, they're, uh, they're neat dogs and, uh, it's cool to hear that you're having a good experience with it. Now, has he been out on sharp tails yet? Oh yeah. Yep. Um, I, I don't, I don't own dogs that don't, that don't walk, walk CRP for sharp tails. Um, that's, <laughs> you know, growing up in Thief River, that was uh, a large part of, of my life. Um, I, I, I always tell the story and people, anyone who knows me has probably heard it 50,000 times, but I remember when I was a kid waiting for the school bus and sharp tail would walk across the road, um, from the bean field over to the CRP field. And I, I still remember that to this day, like standing there waiting for the bus, watching Sharptail. And, um, from that day, um, I kind of fell in love with them. And obviously, uh, working with the Sharptail Grouse Society, I spent a lot of time, um, researching them and talking about them. And, um, they're a favorite bird of mine. And he, he definitely has been out, uh, for Sharptail and, and he has no problem with them. Um, no problem that any other dog is, isn't going to run into. So, so it's been fun. awesome. So I want to ask you just a couple of questions on, on sharp tails a little bit. We won't dive too, too deep into it, but, um, you're in a kind of a unique position, I think in that the access that you have to rough grouse hunting and sharp tail grouse hunting, what, what, what was it kind of like sort of, you know, growing up hunting the two birds and, and now that, you know, after a, you know, a good good chunk of a, of a lifetime hunting these birds, you know, how do they, how do they stack up to each other? Do you, do you favor one over the other? Do you just, you just put them into the upland hunting bucket and you know, you're passionate about that. How does that all shape up for you? Well, I, I, uh, I still probably like rough grouse, um, more uh, as a whole. Like I enjoy hunting them a lot more, but they're, they're so different. I mean, you know, you're talking, talking Aspen thickets or big forest versus, um, willow strips and huge CRP fields and, uh, long, long rolling grass prairies, um, where you look and, you know, you see a car and you're like, Oh, we're not that far from the road. And, and then five miles later, you're like, okay, 
where <laughs> where did those birds land? Um, <laughs> so you know, it's a it's a whole different it's a whole different ball game, and it's it's hard to compare them because it's two completely separate games that you're playing. Um, but but if I had to choose, you know, if I could only hunt one the rest of my life, I would definitely uh, hunt ruffed grouse. Um, but chirp tail, you know, the similar to pheasants, um, they're, they're going to hold a lot better. So the dog work in, in open country is a lot, it's a lot more fun to watch to me. Um, you know, just yeah. kind of let, letting, letting your dog loose and you, you don't have any obstructions. You, you can see them doing everything and you get to see every little nose twitch or, or head turn or, or little stop and go, you get to see all of those things and, and you get to see, uh, the creeping on, on a moving bird and readjustments and, uh, you know, things that you don't always get to see when you're grouse and woodcock hunting. Um, so I really enjoy the dog work aspect of, of sharp tail hunting. Um, when I was a kid, uh, we were kind of told really not to shoot them. Um, you know, they, they've been coined flying liver. Um, but, <laughs> but I, apparently I enjoy liver, but, uh, <laughs> um, I, I, I don't think they taste as bad as people, as people say they do. And, and, uh, we, we, we enjoy them, uh, lightly seared. Uh, we do sharp tail fajitas a lot. So, um, so I enjoy eating them, but the, the conservation side of me, you know, watching the numbers decline and, uh, and sometimes stay stable, but, uh, overall, um, you know, declining over, over the last 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, um, it's, it's a little different for me. So I put a limit on the number of birds that I shoot. Um, and I don't know if other people do this, but I have, I have like a self-imposed limit on, on a, a group of birds. So I've got access to thousands of, of acres of private land in Northwest Minnesota. And, and I've got certain fields that are, and I have named all these fields. Like, you know, this field is my sister. We call it my sister's because it's right across the street from my sister's house. And, and I will only take two birds per year off of that, off of that tract of land. So, um, it's something I, I just, figured out one day that I, I didn't want to take any more birds. And, and, uh, if I bring people up or we go up to film a show, um, you know, then if someone else is able to harvest two birds out of there, then that's two birds that I won't harvest out of there. And I've got enough land up there, um, to hunt where I, I can, I can go elsewhere. And, and it hurts sometimes driving by pieces that, you know, are really good and you've already harvested what you want to harvest out of there. Um, it, it hurts to drive by it and go, Oh, I wish I could walk it one more time, but, um, but it's just some, something we did kind of as a family and, and with, uh, the friends I hunt with, you know, we just have an understanding that, that this is all we're harvesting out of this. And, and, uh, I hope it never comes to that with, uh, with many other species, but, uh, but you know, they're pretty near and dear to my heart. So, so that's just something I've, I've done for myself. Um, and it makes me feel better, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's one of those things where you, you are only one person, but, but you can still make a difference. And then I think that's, that's, it's something to take away. And it's cool. In my, in my off season funk, you know, kind of over late January, February, I was watching a lot of 
bird hunting videos on YouTube and and one of the shows I like to watch that's and I appreciate that it's on YouTube is The Flush as you know with uh, Pheasants Forever and I saw an episode of you and Bob St. Pierre and you guys were out sharp tail grouse hunting it was kind of cool yeah and that was uh you know that was right in our home range there um uh, kind of the area I grew up in and and uh we actually hunted um hunted the tract of land that I that I grew up hunting where I shot my first sharp tail and, and, uh, several of my friends were able to harvest their, their first sharp tail to, to knock it off their bucket list. We were able to, to, to hunt that, that very same field. And, uh, and it was really cool to be able to experience that with Bob. I, I, I love that guy and love hunting with him and, and watching his dog work, his dogs work too. So, um, so yeah, that was a really fun episode and, uh, kind of heartfelt and, and tough at the same time. Um, that that was actually probably um that 20 day period um had more excitement and joy and heartbreak and sadness uh, all mixed into to one I, I had enough emotion in that in that month um that we filmed that that show that uh that i i think it's enough for a lifetime for <laughs> for an upland game hunter um you know, that filming the show itself, we had amazing dog work. The the birds were everywhere. Um, you couldn't have asked for better conditions. It was nice and cool, and it made walking easy. And and uh, you know, and then being able to see your dogs on national television is you know something special. Uh, yeah, seeing yourself is a, a whole different story. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but but being able to watch the dogs on on TV uh, is really cool. But we we lost we pulled up to a field that i wanted to hunt and and watch that crp we literally watched it get bulldozed in front of us yeah, I remember uh, that. yeah and i mean it was freshly burned and and they were planting and now when i drive up there it's a cornfield so um wow. it, it's really sad and then you know not long after the show i lost both of, both of my german short hairs so so it's uh that that show is will forever be um, ingrained, ingrained in my mind and, and uh, one that we, we actually watch often as a reminder of, of the past and, and, uh, and now where we're at in the future. And it's kind of a, one, of, one of those things where, uh, like I said, very emotional and, 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 and on both sides of the coin. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. It was a it was a great show, and I encourage people to check it out. Do you know how Do you know how people could look that up? I know. If, I mean, if you go on YouTube and you search the flush, uh, I wonder if they just search the flush and Matt Brewer or something, they might find it. Yeah, I guess I've never watched it on YouTube. Um, we have a DVR at home, so we just watch it that way. Sure. But uh, but I know if you if you were to type in sharp tail grouse Matt Brewer, I would guess uh, you're going to find either that episode or one of the variants of it because yeah um the production company um was Ron Sherer Productions and they yep. uh, they re-aired segments of it on Minnesota Bound and and uh, some of their other their other shows so you'll be able to find at least parts of it anyway so cool all right. Well, before before I let you go, I, I wanted to touch on one last thing cuz you you mentioned a little bit you you do some work for is it? Do you refer to do you refer to it as the Sharp Tail Grouse Society or is it Sharp Tail Grouse Society of Minnesota? What's the what's the the region? So we're the Minnesota Sharp Tailed Grouse Society. Um, okay. And uh, 
yeah, we we own sharptails.org, so it's semi-confusing because uh, a lot of people think we are the Sharptail organization, and sure. and we might like to think we are, but uh, but but we are <laughs> Minnesota-based, and it is tagged in our name. So yeah, okay, yeah. I mean, you know, Minnesota is maybe probably not the first state that comes to mind when people say sharptail grouse, but uh, I think we've we've proven that that there absolutely are you know viable populations within the state, and there's tradition here and history, and and we're not too far from from wide open expanses of sharptail grouse hunting. So the Minnesota Sharptail Grouse Society, what's, what is, what's your main, your, what's your main goal mission? I mean, is it, is it to restore populations to a certain level? Is it to just completely improve habitat? What's, what's the main focus of the Minnesota Sharptail Grouse Society? Well, there's, I mean, there's several, several, several goals and missions, but, um, but the main thing is to, uh, to restore habitat and, and, uh, and be able to at least keep or uh, or hopefully increase uh, population that that future generations of hunters and non-hunters alike can can enjoy because you know uh, a lot of birders really enjoy sharp tails well and photographers and it's not just exclusive exclusive to to hunters the upland community is is quite varied um, but yeah. you know you know the main focus for us is, is habitat. So, um, you know, we're constantly trying to either acquire or restore or improve habitat. So we're doing brush, brush cuts to try to improve a lot of the WMAs that already exist. Um, we're trying to do land acquisitions to, to purchase tracts of land to turn into possible WMAs, um, assist in, um, some of the, some of the lek counts, um, and we are part of the translocation program where we help uh, we help net some of the birds that that are actually being translocated over to Wisconsin to try to restore um, what was almost a completely decimated population, and it seems to be working so far. So, a lot of different a lot of different moving parts and things going on. So, wow, very cool. Okay, well, yeah, that's uh, that's that's a good little sort of sort of intro to it and we will we will leave it at that and we'll just let the listeners know that if they stay tuned to project upland they may see some more uh from from you and the minnesota sharp-tailed grouse society in the future we we hope to see that um let's we'll call it a wrap at this matt i I really appreciate you you joining us on the project upland podcast where can people what's the best way for them to get a hold of you if they want to ask you something about maybe Minnesota Sharptail Grouse Society, or maybe they want to book a, a fishing trip with you or a bear hunt or, or any of that stuff. Where's the best way they can reach you? Well, if they're already, if they're already on the project Upland website, um, you can pull up my writer's profile there and, uh, and, and there are links to contact me there. Otherwise, if, if they want to go direct, it's just northcountryguides.com and there's links to all of our social media and uh and all my contact information there too so excellent sounds good matt like i said really appreciate you coming on the project up and podcast uh thanks for doing it yeah thank you so much for having me all right everybody that wraps another episode of the project upland podcast thank you for listening as always this week's episode was brought to you by our friends at pine ridge grouse camp i hope you enjoyed it if you did please feel free to share this episode Leave us a rating, leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast. 
If you do any of those things, you might just be next week's winner of the Project Upland Gear Giveaway. As always, we appreciate your feedback. Please feel free to contact us at projectupland.com or by emailing me directly, nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. Thanks again for listening. See you on the next episode. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.